You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. You found Hebrews chapter 12 uh, in your copy of the scripture. We're going to read in just a moment the first two verses of Hebrews 12. I wanted to explain a little bit of why we picked this and, and why, uh, why we're reading this this morning, because it might not be a normal Christmas passage, um, but I think it has much to say to us. This week that we're entering into is one where we're going to uh, see many promises that were made to us or promises that we made to other people where we see those actually kept, uh, where there was things that we said we would do, things we said we would give, things we said that we would share together with our family or friends that we actually will do. Uh, But there are some promises that inevitably that have been made in recent weeks that as we get to Christmas Eve, tomorrow, Christmas Day, and beyond, there's many promises that won't be kept, promises that will be broken for different reasons. Maybe there were presents that we said we would give to somebody, but then economic restraints have made it so we can't. Or maybe we promised that we would be somewhere to spend time with someone, but uh, our circumstances have not allowed that. Or maybe we forgot, uh, worst of all. Maybe we just forgot things that we promised to do. I was even thinking of the song that is uh, on the radio at times, the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Uh, you all familiar with that song? It's a, a sweet song, like these promises of I'll be home for Christmas. But the last line of it says, if only in my dreams. And it's this reality of this song written about World War II soldiers who longed to be home and even, in a sense, wanted to promise to be home, but who their circumstances prevented them from doing it. And uh, we're going to have promises or desires and things that we've pledged that will not come to fruition this week, whether small or big. Many of us are hoping our our shipment dates for things we ordered on Amazon will actually be accurate that come tomorrow on Christmas Eve. We're hoping they come good on those promises, but they may not. And they're, they're, all that to say, there have been, and we've looked at these the last couple of weeks, if you've been here with us, we've been looking at some huge promises that God made. Um, promises from long, long before Jesus ever entered into our world. Promises of joy that would come and that would go to all the nations. Huge promises of, of, of this good news of great joy. And today I want us to see in this text, is God going to deliver on that? Is Jesus capable of delivering on that promise? Because it is an enormous promise, and it's an important thing for us to ask. Can he deliver on this promise of joy, this gladness of soul? We saw several weeks ago in Psalm 67 that God's heart was for the nations to be glad and sing for joy. That was God's heart, him saying he's going to bring it about. We saw when Chris Jones preached a couple weeks ago the high cost that it took to send Jesus into our world, uh, him leaving the glories of heaven to come and eventually bring us joy. And then last Sunday we saw that when the actual birth of Jesus took place, you read Luke chapter 2, there are thousands of angels singing over Bethlehem saying that we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so there's these huge promises being made that have been made for hundreds, if not thousands of years, of this joy that was going to come. And that is a lot of hype. That is a lot of promise being made. But the important thing for us to ask isn't just, was the promise made, but can God come good on it? Can Jesus actually give the nations joy? Can he give you joy? And so that's what we're going to ask today is, did Jesus, even in his own life as a human being, did he experience joy? himself if he's going to give it to us that's an important thing did he experience it and then can he give it 
to us. And so let's read this passage together, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, and then we'll back up and explain some of it and how it comes to bear on us. And it'll show us that Jesus did indeed live a life of joy and that he can give it to us. So let's read this together. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this is the part that we'll focus in most today. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, that may seem like an unusual verse to preach on and teach on at Christmas time, but it has much to teach us about the joy that Jesus experienced himself and then the joy that he can give to us, that he does offer and extend to us. If you've never read the book of Hebrews before, just so you know a little bit of where we're dropping in, the book of Hebrews was a book written very early on in the history of Christians um, by an author we're not even sure who, but was written to people who were ethnically Jewish but who had put their faith in Jesus and who were starting to follow him as the Messiah. But they were tempted to go back to the old Jewish ways of sacrifices and systems that God had had them follow and obey in the Old Testament times. Uh, In this new era of Christianity and believing in Jesus, they were tempted to go back to that. And the author of Hebrews is calling them over and over, don't go back, don't go back, follow after Jesus, press on in obeying him and trusting him, not in that altar back in Jerusalem or that temple, like trust in Jesus. And in chapter 11, right before what we just read, this author had recounted for these early Christians, he had recounted for them example after example after example of people of faith, even in the Old Testament. People who had come up against obstacles and temptations to abandon following after the true God, but who had pressed on confident someday God's going to deliver on his promise. Even if it's not in this life, someday God's going to come good on the things that he's promised to me and to us. And there was example after example after example of people of faith. And as he started the part that we just read, he, he uses this idea of this race, of this, this almost like this stadium where there's this, these witnesses, this crowd, or you might say a cloud of witnesses, these people who have run the race themselves and showed faith in God even to the end. He imagines them as this crowd that is watching us, watching the people who receive this letter run our race now. And see how we face obstacles, see how we face challenges, and see if we're going to be people of faith, people who press on in trust and obedience to God. And so he calls for them to endure in their race, to to press on with perseverance and running. But he says specifically to look to Jesus as they do. Did you see that? And that's what we're going to do today. At the start of chapter 2, he says, as you're running this race of life, As you're pressing on in obedience, even when it's hard to obey, and trust, even when it's hard to trust, look to Jesus. And then he gives it, he doesn't just put a period at the end of the sentence there and just say, look to Jesus. He tells us about how Jesus ran his race. 
how Jesus lived his life as a human being. What happened after Bethlehem? What happened as he became a child and especially as he became a grown man and eventually faced death? He wants us to know how Jesus ran this race, how he faced the temptation to abandon trust in his God. And so as we walk through this passage, especially verse 2, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see the future joy of Jesus as he lived on this earth. We're going to see the secured joy of Jesus, that it's actually his now. It's not just something future. It's actually in his possession right now. It's secure. And then we're going to see what I would call shared joy, that Jesus doesn't just have that joy now and keep it to himself, but he wants to share it with us, and he can share it with us. So let's see in verse 2 how we can see those things, future joy, secured joy, and shared joy. I would draw your attention first as we think about the future joy of Jesus as he came toward the end of his life. Which, side note, some people may think it's weird to talk about a person's life and the end of their life when we're supposed to be talking about their birth and their birthday. But let me just ask you this. When's the last time you went to a birthday party of an adult and pulled out picture books of when they were actually born? Ever? I have never done that. We always, on birthdays, we celebrate what that person is, what they've become, what they've done, what they mean to us. So it's very appropriate on Christmas for us to do just that. And so look at this. Look, as we look to Jesus, this, one of the statements that this author made about him, about Jesus, as he came to the end of his life, is he says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus' life, even up to the very end of it, his life had not been a cakewalk. His life had not been pleasant. We don't have a lot of records of his childhood and adolescence or even young adulthood, but with those last couple years of his life, we have strong records of, and his life was far from pleasant and easy. He was a man of sorrows, Isaiah had said he would be. He had dealt with grief. He had lived a life of, of challenge and strife in many ways. But he had, he had been marked by joy in his life. Uh, so even as it says that there's this joy set out before him as he came to the cross, out in the future, I don't want us to read that and think, well, Jesus didn't have joy at all in his adult life, that he was, he was just a depressed, downcast, um, morose person all the time. He had joy in his life. Yet this author says, as he comes up towards death on the cross, that there was a greater joy that was set before him in the future. Something that wasn't quite yet his. There was going to be this expansion of joy, this, this growth of joy that would eventually come to Jesus. And if there would be anything that would strip Jesus of the joy that he had in his life as a human being, it would have been facing the cross, facing the prospect of the cross. We have crosses around our necks and on church steeples and shirts and things like that. And we lose sight of how awful the cross was. Like that was not a joy-inducing thing. You may look at it now and think, oh, thank God that Jesus died for me. But when he was facing the prospect of the cross, that would have been a haunting thing. It would have been something that would strike terror and fear and strip a person totally of joy. But this author says that there was joy set before Jesus. There was this joy out in the future that, that he could look to and long for and hope and have confidence that someday he would have. Because he, we are called in this passage to get rid of sin, right? To cast it off, to, to get rid of it as we run our race. When Jesus was coming to the cross, the opposite was happening to him. 
He was taking on the sins of other people. He was taking on the sins of people like us onto himself and was going to be crushed by God the Father for our sins. He was going to be put to death for the sins of other people like us. And that if that was not fear-inducing enough and joy-stripping enough of him, he notice that he says he didn't just endure the cross, but that he despised the shame. There was shame involved publicly in the, the death of Jesus and going to the cross. There was great shame. There was He was being mocked as he went to the cross, publicly, awfully mocked. He was being accused of things and told, people telling lies about him that were absolutely false. He was literally exposed and naked upon the cross publicly hung up on this cross as a spectacle for people to watch and to, to, to induce fear in them and to strike terror in their hearts and saying, if you act like he did, you'll become this as well. It was this shameful death that was meant to, to, to expose a person and to embarrass them and their family in the, the most extreme way possible. And Jesus, as he comes up to that, he's not just joyfully going to the cross like, yeah, crucify me, crucify me. He is despising it. Like, he hated it. Like, he, he's not going there with a smile on his face. He, he's going with tears and ble- blood drops of sweat coming off his brow. He, he is going what could seem like the furthest thing from joy in his heart. So that we might be forgiven of our sins. So that that we might be loved and securely loved by God the Father. So he despised this. Yet he he went to it looking for joy that was held out in front of him in the future. Jesus' eyes were set on the future. And we may wonder, what was it that was set before him? What was this thing or this experience that was going to bring him joy? That he could envision, that he could think about as he was experiencing the agony of the cross. I thought there's many things that would have probably been bringing him joy and being set before him. But two that I could think of is one is just the fact that he was about to get to return to God the Father. He had left heaven and become this fragile human being, and he, was, he knew he was about to be able to return to God the Father. But there was also a second thing that I think was set before him that would bring him joy. And I think we have good biblical warrant to believe this. As part of the joy that was set before Jesus was the joy of knowing that sinners like us would be reconciled to his Father. That was on his heart. That was on his mind. That was part of what he envisioned as he endured this awful suffering for the sins of people like us was this joy that someday there would be sinners who are made right with my Heavenly Father because of what I'm enduring right We have a text from Isaiah chapter 53. This was written 700 years before Jesus would come to earth. And this chapter is very famous because it talks about the death of Jesus, how he would suffer, how how our sins would be given to him, how he would be uh, suffering for our sin. But I wanted to point out something to you because Isaiah even anticipated what this author of Hebrews is describing. The author Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the cross. Speaking of it, he said, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then talking about Jesus, he said that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then hear this, he says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
long before Jesus actually lived it, Isaiah knew it was going to happen. That as he went to the cross, as he suffered for the sins of people like us, he saw into the future and knew that there would be people like us who would come to faith. People who would turn from our sins and people whose sins would be washed away forever from our record. And Jesus knew that and there was joy in his heart as he imagined it. There was joy in his heart as he anticipated that. And there was a joy that became a powerful motivation for him as he faced the cross. As he faced that shame, as he faced that intense pain uh, on the cross, there was this motivation of future joy for him. And we're not, we're not ignorant of that experience, are we? There's many times as human beings that we are willing to endure hard things for future gain, Right? Like we do that if we're seeking to lose weight or have some race we want to run, to keep with this metaphor. We are willing to, to do hard things to get ready for that experience, to get ready for that achievement. If there's a purchase we're wanting to make, we're willing to save and to forego spending right now, and it might be hard and painful, but there's this joy of getting that thing or being able to give this gift to a person but the best example I could think of, and as a man, I cannot speak firsthand experience to this, but in keeping with the story of Christmas and the birth of Jesus, and I asked my wife about this, and she said I'm accurate as best as I can in understanding it, is the example of childbirth. There is intense pain that women go through as they are giving birth to a child. I, I've witnessed it secondhand several occasions now, and I can say I'm glad that women are the bearers of children, not men, but I sought to be a support to my wife. But there is intense, intense pain that often is extended for a long period of time, nine months before, but then in an intense way right up before delivery. But coaches of ladies in Lamaze classes and things like that, they will teach them to envision the birth of the child and getting to hold that child and the joy that will just well up within them when they do. And they say, let hold that in front of yourself. Mentally put that in front of yourself and it will help you to endure the pain that you're going through right now, this intense, unspeakable pain. Just imagine the joy that is coming to you. And I've seen it in my wife. It has helped motivate her to press on through hard parts of childbirth. And that is the type of thing, but on an infinitely bigger scale, that was going on with Jesus as he suffered the cross. He knew there was this great joy of sinners being reconciled to God, of himself going back to be with the Father. And he had that set before him and was willing to endure the cross to bring it about. And ultimately... Though it's not stated in this text of Hebrews 12, it's implied very clearly that that led to death for Jesus. It wasn't just like he endured this torture on the cross and then finally was able to get off of it. He endured the cross to death. And he was laid in a tomb. And skeptics, maybe even this room or people that we know, would look at that story of Jesus and what took place in his life and say, what a fool that he was. Like setting this future joy in front of him. What is that nonsense? Like when people die, they die. And they could fool themselves into thinking there's this future hope, but we don't ever know that. Like we, we don't see where they go. We don't know what happens to them after they die. That's what skeptics would say, is that Jesus was on a fool's errand and just deceived himself to help him get through the cross. But there's no real joy coming. But I, I would point you in this passage to, this, to another part of this text where it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And that is what I would, I would want us to see, the secured joy of Jesus. That there was this future joy that he had set out before him as he endured the cross. But it wasn't just some wishful thinking. It has actually been now given to him. He is enjoying it right now as we speak. Uh, he said, the author said that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And praise God for that word, is. Because when Jesus died upon the cross and was laid in the tomb, that was not the end of his story. That was not the end of his life. He was raised just a few days later on the third day, was raised from the dead, never to die again. We can use present tense verbs to talk about him, things he's doing and places he is and, and things he believes and feels. He is alive and well. He is. And he says not just that he is, that he exists, but note where he is now. If he is, he exists, where is he? He says that Jesus is, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, that is where he went after he was raised from the dead. He spent a few weeks with his disciples. But then he ascended back into heaven. People saw it. You can read about it in the beginning of the book of Acts. They recorded it for us. They witnessed him being taken up into the heavens. And he is at the right hand of the throne of God. That is where he left from when he entered into Mary's womb. And that is where he is now returned, now in human form, but alive and well and never to die again. Jesus has been given joy inexpressible, and he's experiencing it right now. We have a passage, I believe, from Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Uh, I wanted to read this to you. This is, again, written hundreds of years before Jesus, but it's this statement uh, that there's bigger context if you see earlier on in this psalm, but I want you to at least see this. This, you can picture this as the words of Jesus. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not, this is like, you could imagine him saying this as he was coming up to the point of death. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's like hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and then listen to this, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That was this statement of fact that was said to be true of God and the joy and the pleasures that are found in being in his presence, in the presence of God the Father. And that is where Jesus is right now. The, the, the joy that had been set before him of returning there to that place is now reality for him. He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. This week, I was thinking many of us are going to get to experience homecomings of sorts, right? Many, in, Some in this room, I know, are from out of town. You're visiting with family members. And as, as we get these experiences, maybe once a year, maybe a couple of times a year, they are sweet times, right? When we get to be reunited with someone we haven't seen for a while. Maybe it's been years since we saw them. Maybe it's been months. But there's a sweetness when we come home, right? When we get to see those people we've missed, that we've been thinking of, that we've been longing to be with. There is a sweetness of homecoming. And I want you to imagine, no human being was there that's still alive that could record it for us, but I want you to imagine what that homecoming was like when Jesus returned to God the Father. Can you imagine what that was like? I would have loved to be a fly on the walls of heaven at that point, because if angels, thousands of them were singing when Jesus came out of a womb, 
Like, imagine what was going on when he came back to God the Father. That joy that was in heaven that, at that moment of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the angels and all the saints who've gone before us. Imagine what joy was happening in heaven as he came home. That is unspeakable joy that was shared by Jesus and by God the Father. And that is where he is right now, experiencing that joy that he longs for. I would want you to note not just where he is, but note the posture with which he's there. As you see, it says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There are many of us who we get to experience some brief interactions with our family this week, but then we're going to go back to our own separate places. But Jesus did not just go to heaven just to stay for a little while and then head back somewhere else. He went there and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not going anywhere. Someday he will return. Someday he will come to this earth and begin to share that joy with increasing measure with us. But he is enjoying it, I promise you, enjoying the presence of God the Father and the glories of heaven right now. He is experiencing joy and he is thoroughly, thoroughly full of joy. And so the joy that was set before Jesus, it wasn't just some wishful thinking. It wasn't just some psychological mechanism that was going on in his mind to help him get through this hard experience of the cross. It was true. Like there was this joy that was set out before him, and he's experiencing it already. He was raised from the dead and ascended back to God the Father, and he's enjoying this joy already. And so we know that he has received it. Right? There was this joy set before him. We know he was raised from the dead. He is. And that he's at the right hand of the throne of God right now. But the question remains for us is can he share that with us? Like can his joy, the joy that he has gained, can it be shared with us? Can he give it to us? And I hope it does not surprise you that I would most assuredly say yes, he can. And yes, he does share that joy with us. I'd point you back to this text and note one other phrase here says that we should be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Of our faith. Faith, if you look back in the chapter just before this, it's even defined for us what faith means. If Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things that are hoped for, so this confident belief that they will come true. And this author of Hebrews, in the part that we read, when he says Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, he seems to be linking these early Christians and linking us, if we're Christians today, linking us with Jesus. He says it's our faith. it's a faith that we share, that he had in himself even. Like, if you read back through Hebrews 11, this chapter before, there's people after person after person after person who were people of faith. But what's implied in Hebrews 12, the part we're reading, is that Jesus is the supreme example of faith. That, That he, as he went to the cross, he was a man who had assurance of things that were hoped for that had conviction about things that were not seen with his human eyes at that point in time. And now this author says that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
Like we get to be people who share in that same type of faith. And you could even translate these some different ways, these ideas of founder and perfecter. One translation I think is actually really good is when it talks about Jesus as our founder of our faith, is that he is this pioneer of our faith. Like he was the, the first one who had faith as it was truly meant to be. But in another sense, some of your translations may say that he is the author of our faith. That he is the one who places faith within us. He is the one who begins our story and starts writing our story and puts faith and a change of heart into our lives, into our hearts and souls. And the sweet thing about faith, you see this through numerous times throughout the New Testament, this idea of faith. When we have faith in our hearts, when we have this trust in the promises of God and confidence that Jesus really did die for me, and was raised for me. There's this mysterious thing happen, that happens when we have faith. Where we are bonded to Jesus. Where we are united with him. Where he's not just in heaven and I'm down on earth and we're detached. And I kind of believe some stuff about him. But there's this, this mingling of us. This uniting of us with Jesus. Where what is his becomes ours. And it is a beautiful, important thing because think about this. When we put our trust, our faith in Jesus and we're united with him, it means our sins have been dealt with, right? Because he endured the cross. He took our sins upon himself. And so when I'm putting my trust and faith in Jesus and I'm united with him, that means my sins have been dealt with. Like they're not looming over me. They're not hanging over my head to be judged someday. So it means that I can have forgiveness of sins. But when I'm united with Jesus, when I'm putting my faith in him and we're united, we're linked together, it also means that I will be raised from the dead. Jesus has eternal life that's been given to him that will never be taken away from him. And I get to share in that. I get to be the recipient, the beneficiary of that because we are now linked together. If I'm linked with Jesus by faith, it means that I have the favor of God over me now. He let Jesus come and sit at his right hand. He loves his son. He delights in his son. And now that is true of me. Like little, sinful, rebellious me has the favor of the eternal God. Because of Jesus and because I'm linked with him, I'm putting my faith in him. And so I have forgiveness, I have the power of resurrection, I have the favor of God, but I also, and you also can be the recipient of this as well, get the joy of Christ. Like that is one of the gifts and the things that we get to share with Jesus when we're united with him, is that we get to share in the joy that he's been given. He he gives that to us, he shares that with us. I believe we have John chapter 15, verse 11, that can be on the screen. I read this a couple weeks ago, and we, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we saw Jesus said this to his disciples the night before he was going to face the cross. He said, these things I've spoken to you, note how he says this, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He didn't just say that, I, I say this to you so you'll have joy. He said, so my joy will be in you. So he's been the re- become the recipient of perfect, infinite, mind-boggling joy. And now he says, that joy I've been given, I will share with you. You can share it with me. I, I, I will share it with you. I was trying to think of how to articulate this because it's an important point. I, I would say it this way, is that joy comes to us through Christ, not just because of Christ. 
It, it comes to us by being united with him, not just because of something he did for us. Now, I was trying to think of an example to illustrate this, and the best that I could come up with is uh, from an ancient story, actually from the story of how we got to have the 26.2-mile race be known as Marathon. Uh, there was this battle that took place at the city of Marathon uh, back hundreds of years B.C., and the Greeks beat the Persians in this battle at the city of Marathon. And they wanted to spread the news. This is before phones, obviously, before you could just send text messages. They were too far to send smoke signals or whatever ancient things they would have done. So they wanted to send a message to Athens, to their capital city, to say, we won. Like, we, we, we beat the Persians. And so they sent this guy. I cannot pronounce his name very well, but I think you say it, Pheidippides. That is an unusual name. Pheidippides, they sent him to run 26.2 miles to the city of Athens to tell the good news. Hey, we won the battle. Like, can you believe it? We won. But for various reasons, because of the terrain and because some of the backstory of him, he made it there to the city. He made it to Athens, and he was able to get out. This is the English translation of it, but this message, Rejoice, we conquered. And then he collapsed and died. Some of us may feel like we would die if we ran 26 miles. But think about this. That city, they rejoiced, right? The, The word spread around that city. They're all probably partying it up, enjoying that they're not under threat of the Persians. They're having great joy. And Pheidippides is lying dead on the ground. And so their joy was not dependent on sharing it with him. Like, he did this great feat. He did this wonderful thing to get them this great news. But then he's not sharing in their joy. Their joy is totally detached from him. And sometimes we think of Christianity that way, that Jesus just did some great thing for us by dying on the cross. But we don't even think twice about whether he's alive and experiencing joy right now. We just think, well, that news has come to us. Man, we're happy, we're joyful. And we forget that in Christianity, in the biblical view of reality, our joy only comes to us truly when it's shared with him. He has joy. He's the possessor of joy now. And he shares that with us. Like he gives it to us. He grants it with us as we're united with him. Our, our joy is not just based in 2018 on something that happened 2,000 years ago. Some ancient event that happened outside Jerusalem. It is based, our joy is based on the fact that we have a Savior who is full of joy right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And he shares it with us. And that it's such an important thing that we realize that our joy comes not just because of Christ in some detached sense, but it comes through Christ. It comes as a gift from Him to us as we're united with Him. I want to speak for a moment to those of you who have not yet put your faith in Jesus. You've not yet found this joy of Jesus that I speak about. It may seem like a foreign concept to you. Jesus told several parables while he was walking around on this earth that have been recorded for us. A few of them are recorded in Luke chapter 15. And there's one where he speaks about this coin that this lady, it's a fictional lady, but he speaks about this coin that was lost. And she searches for it and searches for it and, and cannot find it. And she finally, finally finds it. 
And he talks about how there's this great joy that, that wells up within her heart. And I want to put uh, Luke 15:10 up here on the screen. Right at the end of that story, Jesus said this. He said, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus already has joy at the right hand of the throne of God. He's already been given that. But I know for a fact that one thing that thrills the heart of Christ and that expands his joy even more is when sinners like us turn from our sin and put our trust in him. That brings him, if we've been talking about joy to the world this month, that is what brings joy to the Lord, is when sinners turn from our sin and we put our trust in him as our Savior. That brings great joy in all of heaven when sinners do that, when they turn to him. And you may be tempted to find your joy, find your, your happiness, your gladness of heart in all sorts of other places other than Jesus this year in this life. Some of you are going to find little shells of joy in gatherings this week and presents that you get, meals you get to have. Those things can bring us happiness. They can bring us little flickers of joy in our life, but they cannot. There is nothing that can bring you eternal joy infinite joy and gladness of heart that never wavers, that is secure. There's nothing that can bring you that kind of joy other than Jesus himself. And I would call upon you to let the heavens ring out with joy today by turning from your sin and putting your trust in Jesus. Say, Jesus, I am grateful that you endured the cross for me. Thank you so much for enduring that for me. And I'm confident that you can forgive me. And I ask you to please do that. And if you will cry out to him in faith, the heavens will rejoice and it will blow any of our parties we have going on today or this week out of the water because that will mean that you now get to share in the joys of Christ for eternity. Like you, someone who is destined like me, apart from Jesus, destined for hell, destined for suffering, destined to be apart from God forever, are now a recipient of forgiveness and of joy forevermore. That can happen today. It can happen this moment if you will turn to Christ in faith. I will call upon you to do that. For some of us, Jesus is beginning to author our faith this morning. He's he's beginning to write the story of faith. But for others of us, he is perfecting our faith. Uh, I I wish I had more time to walk through more of this text. But I I would point you ahead to next Sunday. I really would invite you to come back next Sunday. For those of us who already are believers, already are recipients of this joy of Christ, Uh, Because we we have hard things that we experience in this life, don't we? Like when I speak of the joy of Christ that can come to us, this this joy, this gladness of soul that can come to us, I am not trying to imply that it just makes life easy and that there's this just pleasantries in life as far from the truth. Look, if you just even take a quick glance at the text we're reading today, he, he talks about this this race, this course that is set out before us in life. We don't know what that course entails. It it entails often some hard times. It entails some dark moments where we're tempted to walk away from Christ. It entails sufferings of our brothers and sisters, of our friends. It entails often suffering in our own lives. And for all of us, unless we live in the time where Jesus comes back, it entails facing death someday ourselves. 
But there is joy, just like Jesus was the pioneer of this, there is joy that is set before us. Like We have true joy right now if we're Christians. If we've been united with Jesus, we can have gladness within our soul that is unwavering. But we still have sorrow mixed in there right now in this life. But we have hope and confidence and assurance because of what's happened with Jesus that someday we will have complete joy. Someday, when on the other side of death or when Christ returns, someday when he comes to set up his kingdom, his new earth, we will have no need for endurance anymore. We will have no need to set joy before us because it will be ours. It will be fully and permanently, presently ours. But for now, we are called to endurance. We're called to press on in trusting him even in the midst of hard times and trials and suffering and temptations. We are called to press on in faith, enjoying the joy that God gives us now, but longing for the joy that will someday be ours forever. I am grateful that God's heart has always been to bring joy to the world, to bring joy to the nations. I am grateful that that includes me and that that includes you. The joy that Christ gained and that he offers is not just to go abstractly out to all people, but it is to come to you. And I would call upon you if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, never received that joy to have that be today. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment uh, to close out our time after we pray. But I want to invite you, if you would like to talk to somebody about that very thing, like how do I have that joy? Like what does that look like for me to put my faith in Jesus I would love to talk to you. If you came with somebody, uh, talk to them about that. They'd be even better to talk to because they know you. Um, But if you want to talk to somebody, I would be glad to talk to you after the service to pray with you about what that looks like and how you can be a recipient of joy yourself. But let's pray.